0: In a world where talent is evenly distributed, the venture capital is concentrated in coastal silos. Smart startup money is heading for the MidCon. Welcome to the MidCon Markup, a podcast that uncovers the inspiring stories of our visionary tech entrepreneurs and the investors who believe in them. I'm your host, Cody Merrill with Cortado Ventures. Listen, learn, and make your MidCon Markup. Hi, everybody. Welcome today to the MidCon VC podcast. Today, we have a special edition because here at Cortado, we are announcing our fund to close. We are surpassing our 80 million target. And I'm here today with managing partner Nathaniel Harding. Welcome. Thank you. It's a good day. It's a a great day. Well, Mm -hmm. why don't you tell us a little bit more about the announcement and where Cortado's at, and then we can hop into some of the backstory.
1: Yeah, we're, we're thrilled to announce that Fund2, targeting $80 million, we've now oversubscribed and are closing the fund. So this is on the heels of Fund1, uh, started in, in 2020, uh, which was a $20 million fund. So uh, we're, we're very proud that uh, with our investors and the support of, of uh, our investors from Fund1 coming into Fund2, uh, achieve this milestone. It's a big day. Awesome. Well, can you tell us a little bit more about
0: how you got into venture capital, why this work is so meaningful.
1: We got into this because my, my partners and I, Mike Moradi and David Woods, um, we really saw a need and an opportunity in this part of the country to build the kind of firm that we wish had existed when we were building our own companies. Um, There's a big gap in, uh, in the amount of venture capital relative to the amount of quality startups. Um, a lot of great startups in, this, in the region, in the mid-continent, um, but not a lot of organized capital. And so our experience as founders and operators, we believe we could do something about that and uh, and be helpful capital and, and steward the investors' dollar, dollars into these great startups.
0: And then as operators, can you hop a little bit into your background and then what Mike and David bring to the table and then how that informs what
1: you do here? Yeah, so my background, um, you know, in the early days, worked for an oil and gas company and then later... Worked for the family oil and gas company, um, eventually taking over operations, bringing in outside capital, becoming a technology-first company. Um, We then grew more in those three years than we had the previous 30 years and then had a great exit. And this was um, in 2014. Also during that phase of life, I was in the Air Force um, working in Afghanistan with geospatial intelligence and logistics. And then later in a volunteer capacity appointed by the governor to oversee workforce and economic development. Um, So those three things really feed into a lot of kind of my view of the world and how we put together um, Cortado Ventures. But then, you know, Mike, uh, he's a serial entrepreneur with experience in biotech and nanomaterials, um, also as a trustee for a public pension fund. So he's advised other VC funds on both coasts. So uh, I know it's his great pleasure to do this now um, in his home state and then David Woods um, you know he was CEO of Ditchwitch for many years during a really really pivotal time during that company's history um, and has been an executive coach now for the past 15 years and that experience is huge to be able to bring mentorship to the companies in which we invest so lots of successful founders and
0: operators with with exits have this idea that they want to that they want to get into venture capital but it's not as easy as snapping your fingers and everybody starts writing you checks. How do you start a venture capital firm in a part of the country where the majority of the wealth was created in more conventional industries, cash flowing industries, and not this high tech growth and this story that you have to sell them on going forward?
1: Yeah, I I remind myself that just like with the companies in which we invest, it's not build it and they will come. You know, even if you build something amazing that that uh, should attract the attention of the market, in this case, in our case, um, building a, a venture capital fund or having the idea for a venture capital fund in the middle of the country. Um, just because it's a good idea doesn't mean that people will, will invest, because you really have to be able to tell that story and leverage um, a lot of the connections and network that we've built over the many years. And so, you know, for us, that meant yeah, I was very involved not only in the business community but also um, beyond that and in uh, the broader community, and so that network was really essential for me to understand two things: one, to recognize the opportunity that there was um, that there was a chance for us to create a venture capital fund, but also uh, to be able to lean on on those that those relationships and that trust. You know, whenever you're doing something for the first time you really are leaning on that trust and those personal relationships since there's no track record. And um, and that was essential. It's kind of like our family and friends, um, but then, you know, m- in a much larger scale. And that was a really important, you know, breakthrough for us to recognize that we were uniquely situated in this market to be able to tell that story and uh, actually put together the capital to do it. How hard were the early checks? So, ha- very hard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So somebody going first, and it absolutely starts with you know the the the, the kind of closest friends, the ones that you know the, the, the do or die you know ride or die friends, and um, and the family, um, and certainly that was that was huge. Um, and the checks may not be large, and that's kind of how it starts. You know, really, there's so many analogies between what we do as venture capitalists raising capital and what the startups do as they raise capital, and. Um, so yeah, a, a, a lot of work, and um, you know, I wish I could say it, it ever gets easy. But um, in any in any market, and especially this one that we have now, it's difficult to raise capital, and so leaning on that story is really important.
0: So you made the analogy between starting a venture capital firm and starting a startup. What is the analog for product market fit?
1: That's a good question. So for us, that would be thesis, right? Since our product is an idea the idea that uh, placing capital in 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 this geography but also in these sectors and you know we, we focus on energy logistics future of work and life sciences all areas that have um, a lot of infrastructure and talent but also a great future in this region you know natural fit for the region so in venture capital the product market fit is that thesis and so for us the thesis being, that we are going to invest in areas where there is a lot of talent, there's a lot of customers, um, and there's a lot of know-how. The network and know-how is really important, but also our network and know-how. I'm talking about myself and my two co-founding GPs, Mike and David, that we had the experience building companies in those sectors and in this geography. So therefore, we know this area better than anybody else, and can, can both steward the capital, but also be helpful to the company. So venture Capital, product market fit is absolutely what your thesis is. And then does the, and then fitting with that market, in our case, it the market is investors. Product is thesis, market's investors. If those things can sync up, it doesn't mean that automatically you just get customers, just like with startups, you don't automatically get customers just because you have product market fit, but it certainly is an important condition precedent to getting started. So
0: thesis helps, but process as well, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have to choose the, or you have to demonstrate that you can pick the go-to-market strategy. Good companies, right? (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah, And so be able to pick good companies. And so really for us having a background is we know how to build teams. um, We know how to execute on a strategy. And that was, you know, people that know us um, even before we started, knew that that was something we brought to the table. And, um, and so being able to scale a team, create repeatable processes, um, and create a system and really a best-in-class um, uh, venture capital fund, that, those were things that we believe were important just to run a good business, but also to be able to tell that story to investors and have them believe it. Um, and, and so far, they have definitely given us that, that faith. So what was
0: Cortada's track record with Fund One? And then how has that contributed to
1: greater participation in Fund 2? Fund 1 is a a top decile fund, which I'll explain a little bit. And uh, there's different metrics that I'll get into. The best way to understand if a fund is doing well is how is it doing compared to its peers. And in venture capital land, its peers are similarly aged funds or funds of the same vintage. So according to PitchBook and other public data, our metrics all hit um, around the top 10% of all funds of the same vintage in North America. Now some of the metrics include um, IRR, um, so over 30% internal rate of return, um, multiple on invested capital, uh, which is now right at um, two times MOIC. Um, you also look at things like graduation rate, how many companies you know, progress beyond seed stage, uh, loss ratio, how many companies um, don't make it that far, um, so all of those metrics and distributions to paid-in capital, DPI, those are all top decile for us. So that gave us a sense of, you can kind of think of Fund One as, as a bit of a pilot, right? Because we were doing something that um, was fairly novel. So being able to illustrate that we're on the right track was important to us, but also important to our investors. And so those metrics and you know, compared to our peers. And I think just if any investment has a 30% rate of return, that's a good thing. Doesn't matter what the asset class is, um, risk adjusted, that's, that's, that's outstanding. So that absolutely was the underpinning to us for us to have successful fundraising in Fund 2. So we had near unanimous participation and increased allocation from Fund 1 investors into Fund 2. But then also that network effect of, you know, now others outside of our market. so we now have investors from 15 states, both coasts, um, institutional investors, um, you know, a university endowment, hospital foundation, regional endowment, state agency, bank. So we now have several institutional investors, which is a great sign for an emerging manager to be able to um, achieve that level of rigor. Um, and to attract that kind of capital. So that was really, though, built on what we were able to illustrate so far in Fund One.
0: Tell us a little bit more about the difficulty as an emerging manager accessing family office capital and also the difficulties
1: of institutional capital. Yeah, it's often said of family offices. If you've met one family office, you've met one because they're all very different. Um, Different sizes, different focus, um, different structure, and so really being able to, again, start with that, that, that network that already knows you, but then that begets introductions to other family offices um, and understanding what their priorities are, what asset classes they're, they're interested in, um, if they've invested in venture capital before, if they want to. Um, in some cases, you know, they, they maybe haven't invested in venture capital before, but the family got their wealth from an entrepreneurial background and maybe they're first generation, so they know what it's like to you know take a calculated risk and to make it. Um, those family offices tend to kind of get venture capital you know, more quickly, and they understand that, yes, that's how generational wealth is created. And, and other family offices are, are more kind of like, they act more like institutions in that they have a large apparatus, decision-making structure. Um, they have a, a very uh, spec- a specified, allocation strategy. So if that's the case, you understand how you fit into that. You could be a, a great fit in terms of your you know, theme and your success, but if the timing isn't right for their allocation strategy, or if it's just, if they're over allocated, then it's just not going to happen. And so figuring that out is is can be challenging because family offices have less public information um, than do institutional investors. With institutional investors, it's all more kind of that latter scenario uh, where there's well-known, you know, typically well-known allocation formula strategy and timing is important, but there's also um, a lot of criteria around operational due diligence. So beyond just how does your portfolio look, how do your metrics look, there's a whole other layer of ODD, operational due diligence, where they're looking at you know, things down to how do you make decisions, what's your process for a wire transfer to make sure that we can protect the financial information because we have a fiduciary responsibility. And how do we ensure you know, operational security, informational security? What is our decision-making process at the investment community level? Who are our team members? How do we work together? So those are the different aspects of ODD that you really need to be able to illustrate the rigor.
0: What fundraising advice could you give to other hopeful VCs or just emerging managers trying to make that fund one to fund two transition?
1: So I would say for, to, to a, a VC wanting to you know make that 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 transition for fund one to fund two, you know, fund one um, very much is viewed as a proof of concept. It's more about your your immediate network, but then being able to to show how in fund two, you are setting yourself up to being institutional grade. It's almost acting like you're on fund five in terms of um, your, your level of controls um, and, and, and decision-making processes. So doing that, even just during fund one, that way when you're at fund two, you can illustrate some of your track record in fund one, but then you can show that you are built to scale. Because as institutional LPs look at you, I mean, especially, I mean, most institutional LPs, um, uh, you know, pension funds, endowments, they are looking at an investment like this to not be a one-time thing. They're looking at it to be over many vintages. And so for that to make sense, there needs to be clarity that you have staying power and that you're built to scale um, and so some of that also is illustrating how what you're doing can scale. So if your thesis is too narrow, then that can work against you. Um, but if what you're focusing on as an investor has scale or it itself that is growing, that's one way you can illustrate that scale. But also to show that um, you have have um, you know, consistency in your team and repeatable hiring processes to be able to... Kind of grow that institutional knowledge from the founders to kind of that next layer or next generation of who's come onto the team.
0: I want to touch on something interesting that you said there, and that's the defensibility, market position, like having market clout behind your thesis. What is Cortado's long term strategy to maintain a presence in this region, develop thought leadership, and ultimately, be the best aggregator of deals.
1: Now, I kind of go in almost reverse order. So the thought leadership piece is, is really important because since we are helping to define a domestic emerging market, one of our LPs referred it to that and I like that. It's important for us to develop that thought leadership to kind of bring the ecosystem along because if I were doing this in a well-established market, that, that work's already been done. It's been, it was done decades ago. But since we are really um, growing with and helping grow this this asset class in this region, it's I feel you know it's important to us to be able to share that knowledge. And that's why we do things like this. That's why we are very public with what we publish. Um, you know, we're very communicative with with how how we build. Because for this to succeed, we need to have a growing market all around us. All kind of investors looking at different stages and different um, sectors. So that's, that thought leadership is an important piece. So definitely, certainly we will continue to expand on that. You know, We hosted the first ever Mid-Continent Venture Capital Summit in May. A huge success. People from all over the region, all over the country. Um, building on that, having a physical presence throughout our market. And so look for us to have... We have a Tulsa office already. Um, Oklahoma City is our headquarters. But we certainly have, have um, plans, imminent plans to expand... Into Bentonville, in Dallas, um, and other places of the region, long term. So that way, our belief is that with early stage investing, boots on the ground is still important. Um, call it a you know a, a ex-military term, but boots on the ground is still important uh, because these companies we're investing in, they're not on PitchBook yet. You can't find them on databases yet. You find them by having people physically present at the different. Accelerator programs, venture studios, university programs, where these founders are starting to build their companies. So that's why another part of our long-term growth plan is to see um, that you know that our physical presence expand in the region. Um, certainly, other vintages of funds and growing with the market. So already, this our immediate market has grown by many measures, um, many times over, just in a few years, and so. You know, we'll grow with that, so we can maintain our ability to to lead, or significantly syndicate rounds as we invest in companies, building out the team, and um, and having that capacity, and to be able to specialize more deeply into certain areas where we invest, um, and then looking at n- investing in in other stages. And so, right now, we focus on the seed stage. We do some pre-seed. We do some early series A. Uh, we, we wanna work with um, creating and fostering an angel network. So that way there are earlier stage investors that serve as a, um, that, can be, that can help feed more of the quality deal flow into our pipeline, but then also looking at investing in later rounds because as market grows, so will the opportunities for growth investments. So you know, three years ago, very few opportunities for really growth stage investments, but because of our work and the work of others, that's changing. So you'll see a lot more opportunities for that in the coming years. Awesome.
0: Well, do you have any final words for our audience about how to get involved? (laughs) Is the round still open? If there's potential LPs who are interested, how can GPs best collaborate with us? How can founders best work with us? What does that look like?
1: We love all those things. And so uh, absolutely, um, we are technically able to keep the fund open um, until the end of the year. Uh, we do have a hard cap of hundred million dollars um, or oversubscribed beyond the 80 million. Uh, but but certainly, um, if somebody wants to be a part of this as an investor, um, you'll reach out and uh, my email address just nharding at cortado um, but also other ways to get involved if you have you know if you know smart founders, you know great companies, please refer them to us. Um, technical talent. Also refer to us because there's always job openings in the companies in our portfolio because they're growing so quickly. Um, we do a lot with different events, uh, both with funders and founders. We do some big events like our annual meeting and the MidCon summit, um, but we also do less formal gatherings, you know, founder hours, funder-founder dinners, um, so that way we can connect those who invest and those who build. Um, so, if interested in, in any of that, then certainly um, reach out. Also, um, even on this, own, this platform here with the podcast, telling the stories of entrepreneurship in the region is important. So if you have a great story to tell, um, then reach out as well for that. And uh, there's, there's also uh, philanthropic ways to be involved. And so uh, we, um, we, we help start the Foundation for Unleashing the Startup Ecosystem, whose acronym is FUSE, which is a great philanthropic way to support venture capital and tech entrepreneurship. And it's focused on just that. Um, And so if somebody's interested in helping in in other philanthropic ways, there's, there's avenues for that as well.
0: So you were just explaining a little bit about how the process has gone from friends and family to people that you knew in your professional life, people that you had met through civic engagement, picking up early checks, and then eventually you're able to raise money from family offices and institutional investors after you establish more proof of concept with what you're doing. But can you give us a sense of like, what are the daily logistics like for fundraising? Like, how do you succeed at the sport of fundraising? If it was easy, everybody would be doing it. And it's painful, it's brutal, but you're great at it. How do other people do it?
1: Yeah, so I think there's many reasons why um, raising significant venture capital in Oklahoma like really hadn't happened, you know, until the last few years, and uh, part of it was the right timing with the product market fit and the strategy. But absolutely, I now have even more empathy for um, the the startup founders who are raising capital because of that experience. Now, a little bit of background: when I was an operator and an entrepreneur, raised capital, you know, raised private equity and. Um, and through different iterations as an entrepreneur, um, raised some total of almost $200 million. And now in venture capital, um, we've raised 100 million for like early stage, middle of the country investments. And it's absolutely a lot of work to go from getting that first meeting to getting that first wire. Um, Because again, just because you have a great idea and built the strategy doesn't mean it happens. So it, it works something like this. Um, you start off making a list, and th- you're thinking of everybody that, um, with whom you have a good connection, business or personal, and you're working your way out from that list. Um, and then, you know, kind of friends of friends or other people that, that maybe fit a profile that might work.
0: Okay, so are, are you sending them an introductory email, a text, how are you initially saying, I'm going from operator to VC, mm-hmm. like, how do you queue that up? It,
1: it, it depends a little bit on how early it is in the process. So you, our initial list was maybe 400 people. And um, so close friends aside, because I think we can all imagine, like with a very close friend, you just bring it up whenever. So maybe that being a whole other category, kind of the next tier, um, is some version of you think you might be interested in, in hearing about what we're working on you know, we're excited about it because of this. We think you might be interested because of it aligned, you know, because we're investing in early stage companies and um, high tech companies and having a great impact in our region. We think the opportunity is now, but very, very brief. Um, really I'm talking maybe like three or four sentences on just, you know, want to meet up and let you know what we're working on. Because um, there's definitely a balance of, you don't want to be cheeky and just be kind of like, um, let's just meet up for some unspecified reason. Um, But you also don't want to come on too hard and say, and like pitch in the intro email. The purpose of that first email is to get a meeting. It's not to get a yes, it's to get a meeting. The purpose of that first meeting is to then have a a warm audience for that follow-up. And there may be another meeting, or it may just be email, phone call, text, communication, follow-up, sending whatever information they want to see. So in that
0: first email, there's some combination of a light touch explanation of what you're working on, some component of this is exciting, this is something that you can be a part of, and then how do you find that angle that ties it to them personally that I think
1: leads to much warmer reception? Yeah, having a bit of a sense of um, if they would be interested in the high-tech aspect or the diversifying the economy in the region aspect, or if it's just appreciating kind of the entrepreneurial journey that, hey, we're backing the next generation of entrepreneurs. So understanding a little bit about, you know, what's more of a priority with them. And in some cases, um, you know, acknowledging that, although not explicitly acknowledging that, hey, it's okay if you don't invest because you don't want to make it like too easy for somebody to say like, no, thanks and not take a meeting. So being able to say, I get a lot of value in meeting with executives in this area because we get smarter at, you know, understanding more of this sector as investors. And so giving kind of a couple of reasons to meet because just in case it's not quite the time to talk about investment, there's other things to talk about. So it's also not just so transactional that I want to meet with you for one reason and one reason only. You know, there's more to you as a person and I want to acknowledge that and appreciate it. Um, Because a lot of times it's not about the direct ask. It's about connecting with somebody, sharing our experiences together, and you are going to get smarter and it's going to help you in other ways. Um, You're going to get more reaction from like referring companies or talent. And those things are more likely to lead to an investment as opposed to saying where we're meeting now, I'm pitching you now, yes or no. Um, So I think that's an important aspect. Now it gets different as you get into more of the institutional realm, because if you're, if if I'm emailing somebody who manages an institutional fund an endowment, a university, a, a university endowment or a hospital foundation, then I mean, it's, it's very clear like what the reach out is about. And, and in that case, there actually is an expectation of, of a more formulaic approach of here's a couple of key metrics. Here's where we're at in our fundraising. Here's a bit of our track record. So if you're reaching out to an institutional investor, keep it very brief, bullet points, and give a few of those salient facts. But doing that to just an individual would be weird to say, hey, I haven't seen you in a while. Here's some metrics on my fun. Um, And so again, understanding kind of what bucket they fit into, if they're a so-called professional investor is like a one broad bucket that I put in, like if if their day job is to invest in things like venture capital, then absolutely take the route of, I want to meet with you, consider allocation, here's some stats. If they're not a professional investor, then there's other reasons to meet and other, in many cases, beyond financial reasons that they might care about what you're doing. So then, have the first meeting. You follow up. Follow up is something that people think they get, but they don't really get. And it's also true for companies that pitch us. And so, if somebody's pitching Cortado Ventures, this is true for other VCs and other investors as well. Follow up is outrageously important um, because, for one, that's where you're able to then respond to what you heard in that meeting. So now you're able to kind of customize information. Um, You're able to show what kind of operator you are. Are you communicative? Are you responsive? Um, Are you transparent? Are you reliable? Do you respond quickly? Um, And it just keeps the, 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 the connection warm because that way when, if and when there is an opening on timing, then you're their first choice. What I mean is, we all have lots of things happening in our lives beyond just allocating to an asset class. So timing is so important because we don't know what's going on in somebody's life. We don't know, you know, where they've, where else they've invested or where else they have commitments or they have kids in college, whatever it is. And we'll never find those things out. So instead, when there is an opening, when when somebody feels like they are at a place where they can invest more, you want to be first in line. And the way you're first in line is that you've had a warm connection that you've maintained. You've kept them updated. Now you know, we do newsletters. You know we um, and, and we have actually over 10,000 subscribers to our, our our public newsletter that goes out every month. But then also other touch points um, of just keeping somebody updated with what we know would be germane to what they want to hear. So that follow up is absolutely key. And then even after you get to a yes. There may be up to 10 more follow-up touch points to actually get to signed documents. People are busy, people forget, they get started on something and and it doesn't get finished. So actually getting to a signature and getting to that first funding, it takes a surprisingly long time. And you know, I've I've noticed others um, you know, it, that that have to raise capital. And I'm not just talking about venture capital, I'm talking about anything. I'm talking even just like closing on donations for philanthropy. Um, just because you have a yes in email doesn't mean your job is done. And so I think people would be shocked to know you know how much work goes into that, how many touch points there are for that first outreach until that first funding. And I mean, I'm talking, it could be nine months and 20 to 30 touch points to, to get from there. It's, it's actually, people like hear stories about like, well, I, I did have one meeting where... They interrupted me twelve minutes into the the meeting, and they said, "I'm in for a million dollars." They wrote a check on the spot. That happened one time, and like, but that's the thing that people like think of, like, "Oh, if I'm doing it right, that's going to happen all the time." And this, that was literally a one out of like a thousand thing that happened. Every you know, the ninety percent rest of it, ninety five percent plus, um, is a lot more work. And so, you know, we we don't use um, a, a placement. Um, consultant, you know, we don't use a broker um, to raise capital. It's all been through our network and then building on our track record and doing a lot of what I talked about that that process.
0: One of our LPs has described you as being exceptionally persistent in the fundraising process. How do you toe the line between persistence and like,
1: am I actually annoying this person? <laughs> like, is this harassment? <laughs> That's a great question because then I also think about, yeah. Remember, I'm also on that other side of the table like all the time, right? So we we are professional investors investing in startups. We look at 800 companies a year, and so I always try to think of how I like to be treated, and of course, it's always with you know respect, um, because again, we don't know what's behind people's decisions um, the vast majority of the time. All we can go off of is stated intent and desire and interest until there's stated disinterest. And so, I mean, people generally will tell you, like, hey, actually, I was interested, but, but now I'm not for whatever reason, timing, whatever. And giving somebody the chance to say that is, like, ultimately the, the best way that makes sense um, and the most respectful and so, if somebody has any kind of stated interest, then I really feel it's upon me to follow up on that until they say, actually, I'm not interested anymore for whatever reason. It's like, that's totally fine. You know, totally get it understood. You know, stay in touch. Like, we can revisit whenever you want or not. And so, but just really being upfront about, you know, I'm responding and respecting your interest in this and I want to give you more information to help you make a decision until you tell me that you've changed your mind, which, again, totally fine. And, um, and so I think that's really just part of the job. And so, you know, a big part of my job is raising the capital to make all this possible. And I get you know, great help um, with you know, partners and with others on the team um, because it definitely takes a lot of um, participants in this whole process but at the end of the day, I really—if it's—if it's somebody that with whom I have a connection, then I owe it to myself and to everybody here um, to keep up with it. Because I also understand, you know, I, I perceive and I think there's lots of anecdotes that this is illustrating. This is true. That lots of deals don't get done. I don't want to—I don't want to use too many double negatives. Um, some deals don't happen not because of lack of interest, but because of lack of drive. And so having the drive to persist in building a company and building your technology or in raising capital, that's, that is what separates the companies or the firms that are able to cross that finish line or achieve those milestones and the ones who aren't. And um, so, yeah, I definitely, I, guilty as charge on the, uh, on the persistent, um, but if anybody has ever, ever changed their mind, then like I think any of them would tell you that they get a response from me that says, totally get it, understood, stay in touch. And in many cases, months later, they say, okay, now I'm ready.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today. And can't wait to see the great work that all these companies and Fun 2 are going to do for this community and region. Thanks, Cody. It's great. All right. Thank you.